altar, even to the mercy seat where the faces of the cherubims. Now, what's interesting about the word mercy seat, uh, if you look that word up, it, uh, it means, it comes from the word that means to, uh, to uh, propitiate. Now, that is a biblical word that has meaning behind it. And basically, the word propitiate means the removal of sin. That's what it means. And in fact, when we get saved, this is what's amazing, is that God, well, let's just look at the verse here real quick. Instead of me explaining it, let me show you, and then we'll get into this. Go to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. Of course, uh, I've taught you this before, but the book of Romans is our book where our doctrine comes from. And uh, it, it's kind of the, uh, uh, the, uh, the, the book, the constitution, if you could say, of what our doctrine's about and uh, where uh, the, our core belief system comes from. So it shouldn't surprise us that we find propitiation here in the book of Romans. Look, if you will, down at verse 24 and 25. And this kind of explains a little bit about it. And again, folks, remember, what does this point to? It points to Jesus Christ, okay? Yep. Notice what it says. Of course, we know verse 23, amen? We use it quite a bit. Back today, I quoted it as uh, Brother Jeff and I was able to lead someone to Christ. This verse came up, verse 23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. By the way, all means all, amen? That means you, that means me, that means everybody. And you know what? Along with that, it's a problem. Along with sin comes a problem. But look at verse 24. Here's where it starts getting good, amen? Verse 23, not so good. Verse 24, 25, really good, amen? Notice what it says, being justified freely. Now, just that phrase right there could be a whole sermon right there. Don't worry, it won't be. Amen. At least tonight it won't be. But being justified freely. By the way, justification is another, another one of those Bible doctrines. It means that when God looks at us, when we're saved, when we're born again, our account is just as if we've never sinned. Amen. Yes, we're justified. Right. So God doesn't see our sin once we've been saved. And I'm going to show you why. It says this, by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. By the way, there's a lot of doctrine just in verse 24 right there. You find the doctrine of justification. You find the uh, uh, doctrine of being saved by grace. You find the doctrine of redemption. Amen? It's all right there in that, in that short verse. But look at verse 25. Whom God has set forth to be a propitiation. There's that word. Through faith in His blood to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. And again, I'm not going to teach all aspects of that verse tonight, but again, verse 25 talks about that God set forth. Who did He set forth? Who's the subject matter? Verse 24, it's Christ Jesus. Amen? Amen. And He set Him forth to be the propitiation through faith. And that propitiation literally means the, re the renouncing of sin. And so again, folks, that's why a relationship with Jesus Christ is the only way to be able to approach Amen. the Father. Amen? Yes, He's the only one that has the power to propitiate our sin. And so the fact that means that when God sees us, well, it's, it's, our sin is renounced, that right there is the word that the word mercy seat comes from. That's what it's talking about. All right? And so uh, just to kind of give you a background as far as and as how that relates to us today. Now, here's what I want to look at for a few moments about the mercy seat, because this is quite a bit described of, of the mercy seat. And the first thing I want to look at tonight is the, uh, the, the architecture or the, um, the uh, artwork, kind of, if you will. I don't even know how to use that word, but a part of the construction of the mercy seat were the cherubims. 
And that's very interesting because I begin to look that word up and study that out today. And, and the Bible has a lot to say about cherubims. Now, first of all, let me tell you what cherubims are. They are some type of heavenly being, okay? Now, we would say angels, and I guess they might be a classification of an angel, but they're not an angel like Michael or Gabriel, okay? There's different kinds of God's invisible creation. Cherubims are a form of an angelic creation. And here's what we know about cherubims. Let's just take a journey through the Bible tonight, amen? Uh, let's go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. Here's the first uh, place in the Bible where we have mentioned about cherubims. Now, this is not the first in, uh, the, the technically, well, and I'll show you in, in another part, it's not really the first uh, place the cherubims are at, of course, but mentioned to us it is, uh, because really later on we're going to see that Satan was the anointed cherub that covered the throne of God. Right. So he was before this, but as far as the timeline goes, humanity goes, Here's the first part we see. Look at Genesis chapter 3, verse 24. And, of course, this is when Adam and Eve have sinned, and God had to expel them out of the garden. And notice what it says in verse 24. So he, God, drove out the man, and he placed at the east of the garden of Eden cherubims and a flaming sword, which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. And so these cherubims here were some type of angelic guard that guarded the Garden of Eden. So nobody else, after Adam and Eve got expelled, could come into the garden. By the way, think about this. Adam and Eve were the only two human beings ever to be in the Garden of Eden. That was it. And it didn't have to be that way. But because of sin, uh, they were the only ones that were able to partake of that. And now the reason God put the cherubims, because he, he tells us why, okay? To keep the way of the tree of life. Here's the problem. Mankind in their fallen state could not eat the tree of life. Because had they eaten the tree of life, they could have lived forever in their fallen state. And by the way, I don't know about y'all, I don't want to live forever in my fallen state. Man, the, the darker this world gets, the more I, the light of home uh, keeps beckoning me. Amen? I mean, I just want to go. Now, I understand we're, we we got a, we got a, a plan we got to fulfill. We, we got a battle that we got to fight. But listen, it wouldn't upset, upset me one bit if that trumpet sounded tonight. Amen? Even so come Lord Jesus is what John said there in the book of Revelation. And because, folks, listen, this world is crazy. It's not so. Amen? But God had to put those cherubims there to guard the way of the tree of life. And the Bible says about these cherubims that they had a flaming sword. And so uh, that they were the guardians, if you will, of the Garden of Eden. And by the way, mankind forfeited that because it was Adam's job to dress and to keep and protect that garden. But Adam forfeited the right, so God had to put the cherubims there to protect it. So that's the first thing we see about the cherubims. Now, uh, as you begin to journey through the book of Exodus, uh, you begin reading about the cherubims when it comes to relation uh, as far as the construction of the tabernacle. Those cherubims were these angelic winged beings because the Bible talks about how their wings covered their faces there. We read the description of it. That were on top of the mercy seat. And uh, you find them, the, the curtain that separated, the veil that separated the holy place from the most holy place had cherubims stitched onto it. And then the cherubims were on top of the Ark of the Covenant. Let me show you another very interesting passage of Scripture. Let's go to Ezekiel chapter 10. Ezekiel chapter 10. Of course, if you go to, um, you go to uh, Proverbs, uh, then uh, start going over a little bit. Uh, you'll come to... Uh, 
Isaiah, Jeremiah, then you'll come to Ezekiel. Ezekiel, of course, was one of the, um, uh, the God's prophets there to the nation of Israel. Now, there are some parts of the Bible that I read and I believe because it's the Word of God. But I'll just say this. There are some parts of the Bible that, you know, I'll be honest with you, I just don't quite understand, okay? And by the way, that's okay. Because here's what I always say. If you can understand and wrap God around your, you know, peasly little human mind, what kind of God would he be? Right. Let me tell you what I love when God does for us. There's portions of Scripture where God opens the veil and lets us see into the unseen creation. And this is one of those passages here. Of course, Ezekiel was God's prophet. God allowed Ezekiel to see the spirit world in, in several places throughout the book. Here is one of them. Now, for sake of time, I don't know that I'm going to read the whole chapter, but the whole chapter, you find the cherubims all throughout this chapter. Okay? Let's just read a little bit. And uh, again, do the best you can to try to understand what you're reading. All right? I don't even think Ezekiel completely understood everything he saw. He just put it down because God told him to. All right? Here we go. Verse 1. Then I looked, and behold, in the firmament that was above the head of the cherubims, there appeared over them, as it were, a sapphire stone, as the appearance of the likeness of the throne. What's Ezekiel seeing here? He's seeing the throne of God. By the way, you compare this to Revelation chapter 4, it's exactly the same thing, okay? And he spake unto the man clothed with linen and said, Go in between the wheels, even under the cherub, and fill thine hand with coals of fire from between the cherubims, and scatter them over the city. And he went, and he went in in my sight. Now the cherubim stood on the right side of the house when the man went in, and the cloud filled the inner court. Then the glory of the Lord went up from the cherub and stood over the threshold of the house, and the house was filled with the cloud, and the court was full of the brightness of the Lord. And the sound of the cherubim's wings was heard even to the outer court as the voice of the Almighty God when he speaketh. And it came to pass that when he had commanded the man clothed with linen, saying, Take fire from uh, between the wheels, from between the cherubims, then he went in and stood beside the wheels. And one cherubim, a cherub stretched forth his hand from between the cherubims into the fire that was between the cherubims and took thereof and put it into the hands of him that was clothed with linen who took it and went out. And, and the rest of the chapter describes for us about the cherubims and what Ezekiel saw. And if you back it up to the beginning of the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel describes what he calls wheels within wheels. You say, what's all that mean? I'll be honest with you, I don't even know for sure. All I know is... Ezekiel saw into the invisible creation. And you know what was in that? You know what was in that invisible creation? The cherubims. Okay? And so you find these angelic creatures. And, uh, and let me tell you what's very interesting about these angelic creatures. Is you always find them surrounding and near the throne of God. Now that's very interesting here. And I'm going to show you that here in just a minute in another place. Okay? So we see them here in the book of Ezekiel. Now, you're still in Ezekiel. Flip over to chapter 28, Ezekiel chapter 28. And here we see another reference here about uh, a cherubim. And this is a description of Lucifer before he became Satan. And we have two passages that describes who Lucifer was there in Isaiah and then here in Ezekiel. Now, a lot of times what you see God do in these chapters, he will compare someone on earth and to an earthly ruler to Satan or to Lucifer. And he did that in Isaiah, and he's doing it here also in Ezekiel chapter 28, talking about the earthly king Tyrus 
But then very quickly, the typology goes to Lucifer, okay? And so let's look here at verse 6. All right, Ezekiel 28. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, because thou hast set thine heart as the heart of God, behold, therefore, I will bring strangers upon thee, the terrible, the nations, and they shall draw their swords against the beauty of thy wisdom, and they shall defile thy brightness. They shall bring thee down to the pit, and thou shalt die the deaths of them that are slain in the midst of the seas. Will, wilt thou yet say before him that slayeth thee, I am God? But thou shalt be a man, and no God, in the hand of him that slayeth thee. Thou shalt die the deaths of the uncircumcised by the hands of strangers, for I have spoken it, saith the, uh, the Lord God. Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation upon the king of Tyrus, and say unto him, Thus saith the Lord God. Now, now here's where we switch over from the actual earthly king Tyrus to Lucifer. Okay? Thou sealest up the sum, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Thou hast been in Eden, the garden of God. Let me just stop right there, okay? We know he's talking about Lucifer because Tyrus was not in Eden, okay? And what's interesting, notice this description of Lucifer, okay? Back at the end of verse 12. Thou sealest up the sum, full of wisdom, and perfect in beauty. Now, does that sound like the Hollywood devil that the real devil wants you to think he is? Okay, does that sound like a, a pitchfork uh, guy all red with horns and grotesque looking and, and evil and these fangs and stuff? Thou sealest up the sum of beauty? Listen, let me tell you, that is not really who the devil is, by the way. Amen? Lucifer, I always say this, and I believe 100% it's true based upon what the Bible says about it. If Jesus Christ were standing up here tonight in his glorified body, and Lucifer was standing right up here tonight, most people wouldn't be able to tell the difference between them. Because Satan, Lucifer, wants to be so much like God that he can deceive people into him being God. I'm going to tell you, his number one tool is deception. The devil is not who you think he is. Okay. By the way, he wants it that way. And he doesn't care. He doesn't care if you choose not to believe in him. He's good with that. Okay. He doesn't care if you choose to believe he's some evil, you know, horn, and he is evil, by the way, but evil-looking, you know, uh, horn, fang, pitchfork guy. As long as it keeps you from having a relationship with Jesus Christ, he don't care what you believe. You can believe anything and everything if it's not the truth. Okay? Now, again, let's go back here. What it says, verse 13. Thou hast been in Eden, the garden of God. Now, notice this next description. Every precious stone was thy covering. The sardis, topaz, the diamond, the barrel, the onyx, the jasper, the sapphire, the emerald, the carbuncle, and gold. Now, I don't know about you, but if you had a vesture made of those types of things, how would you not think that was beautiful? That was his covering. That's what he was made. That was part of either his vestments that he wore or maybe even part of his body that he had. And notice the next part, because this is very interesting. The workmanship of thy tablets and of thy pipes was prepared in thee in the day thou was created. Okay, and that leads us to the next verse, verse 14. Thou art the, okay, particular, singular, okay, the anointed cherub that covereth. And I have set thee so. Thou wast upon the holy mountain of God. Thou wast walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. Thou wast perfect in thy ways from the day thou wast created till iniquity was found in thee. 
Now, I'm going somewhere with this. Don't miss this, okay? Because Satan was, or should I say Lucifer, okay? He didn't become Satan until after God kicked him out. By the way, the word Satan means accuser, okay? Lucifer means the, the light bearer, all right? And when it talks about here the fact that the workmanship of thy tabrets and of thy pipes was prepared in thee, okay? Literally, this is what it means. Satan or Lucifer, I keep saying Satan, the same one I, I would say. Lucifer was and is a musical instrument. When he speaks, he speaks music. That's what it says. Thy pipes was prepared, thy tabrets and pipes was prepared in thee. Here's what I believe Lucifer was, based upon this passage right here, and based upon verse 14. Lucifer was the cherub that covered the throne of God, that led in the worship of God. By the way, there was something about what Lucifer saw that made iniquity come in his heart, like the Bible says. Here's what I believe it was. I believe next under, under the Godhead, under the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, was Lucifer. Because he was the anointed cherub. What did he cover? It says the anointed cherub to cover. I believe he covered the throne of God. He was the guardian of the throne of God that led in the worship of God. But you know what? It wasn't good enough for him. Because he wanted the top spot, the spot nobody can have or ever will have. And that's the place of being God. And let me tell you, he wasn't content with that, even though he was probably the most powerful created being under the Godhead. He still wasn't content with what God made him to be. And iniquity was found in his heart. And God had to boot him out. We, we, we read about that in the book of Isaiah. Jesus talked about that he saw Lucifer fall from heaven, heaven as lightning. And so that is the origination uh, from Lucifer to Satan to what we're dealing with today. Okay? But what, what the point I'm trying to make is that he was a cherubim. And so... That being said, the cherubims have wings. Lucifer has wings. It's biblical. What it says, it teaches us that right there. Now, other places tell us that all angels have wings, but we know the cherubims have wings. Lucifer was the anointed chair to cover it. So Lucifer, in his glorified body, if you want to say that, or his heavenly body that he still may have, has wings. And he's the cherub that covered the throne of God. Now, Again, we're going somewhere with this. I'm not, I'm not trying to bog you down, but man, this is interesting stuff when you chase it through the scripture. All right? So the cherubs, you find them there, uh, garden, uh, the Garden of Eden. In Ezekiel, we find them there, guarding the throne of God. Lucifer was the anointed cherub that covered the throne of God. And let me show you here, again, real quick, uh, another place where the Bible completes itself in this area. Go to Revelation chapter 4. Revelation chapter 4. And this is, uh, again, right after the rapture. John is taken into heaven, and he sees the throne of God. Now, in this particular passage, they're not called cherubs or cherubim, but based upon other places of Scripture, these he, John calls them the beast. Maybe John calls them this because he doesn't know how to describe them any other way. Okay? And we see here, it says in verse 6, okay? We'll just read a couple verses. Revelation 4. And before the throne, there was a sea of glass like unto crystal, and in the midst of the throne, and round about the throne, were four beasts full of eyes before and behind. And the first beast was like a lion, and the second beast like a calf, and the third beast had the face as a man, and the fourth beast was like a flying eagle. And the four beasts had each of them six wings. There you go, wings. So we know they must be a form of cherubim because they have wings. And they were full of eyes within. They rest not day and night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. 
And so you see here, the cherubim's guarding and protecting the throne of God. Not like God himself needs that protection. But let me tell you, the main point was for them to remind God of his holiness. Amen. And again, uh, this, uh, uh, the, 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 this special created cherubim. By the way, doesn't that not even make more sense that the cherubims would cover the ark, the mercy seat? Because what was that representation of? The holiness of God. Amen. So they were guardians of that. Let me just show you a couple more places here. Go back to Psalms chapter 80. Psalms chapter 80. So much, uh, uh, there's, there's so much more. I, mean, I could make it probably a whole series uh, studying about this, but again, I'm not trying to bog you down with it. But man, I thought it was interesting that the cherubs, which were on the mercy seat, man, they're all throughout the scripture in several places. Now, check these verses out. These are kind of neat. Psalms chapter 80. Let's look at verse 1. Notice what he says. He says, Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, thou that leadest Joseph like a flock, thou that, notice this, thou that dwellest. Between the cherubims shine forth. Of course, he's talking about God here, okay? Go to Psalms 99. Psalms 99 and verse 1. Psalms 99, verse 1. And uh, here's what he says here. He says, The Lord reigneth, let the people tremble. Notice this. He sitteth between the cherubims. Let the earth be moved. All right? One more verse. Isaiah, not too far from there. Isaiah chapter 37, and if you don't want to turn there, that's fine. Just listen as I read it to you. Isaiah 37, verse 16. O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, that dwellest between the cherubims, thou art the God, even thou alone. Of all the kingdoms of the earth, thou hast made heaven and earth. And so the Bible says here that God dwelleth between the cherubims. Now listen, I believe, yes, that's referring to his throne in heaven, no doubt about it. We just read it in Revelation chapter 4. They surround his throne. But also, I think that ties back into what was going on in the tabernacle on that mercy seat. Because if you go, if you, and we won't for a second time, won't go back there, but if you read the description there that we read in Exodus 37, it talked about that how God would communicate with them above the cherubims. That his presence was there above the cherubims. Now listen, it's very interesting because God didn't tell them to put any kind of image of him in the, um, uh, in the temple there. Okay, Now there were representations of him, but there was no image of him. You know what? Mankind doesn't need an image to worship God. They don't need an image yeah. to see who God is. Right. God's presence yes, dwelt right. above the wings Amen. of his cherubims. Right. I mean, that great high priest went in there every year and he would sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat. Amen? Once a year to make an atonement for the sins of the people. You know what he was doing? He was, he was communicating with God who met with him above the cherubims. Amen? You say, man, I, I don't even quite understand that. Well, join the crowd. Neither do I necessarily. But I think it's pretty, pretty awesome, pretty amazing. Okay? And so we see that the cherubim's there. Notice also what we notice is the, uh, what the uh, material was made of. Uh, these were made of pure gold. Okay? Now, what's, what gold, what's gold have to do with anything? Well, gold represents value. Gold, gold represents importance. Okay? Uh, gold represents the holiness of God. It uh, speaks of the purity of God. I mean, gold is one of the most, uh, most valuable substances that we have on this planet. I mean, even to this day, supposedly, our money's backed up with gold. Now, I'm not saying I believe that, all right? In fact, truth be told, it's probably just a bunch of worthless paper, all right? But gold represents things of value, things of importance. You know what God was trying to tell his people? When it comes to me and my holiness, I'm important, amen? 
and, and I'm valuable, and you need to value me, is what he was trying to teach, uh, show them, and represent them when it came to gold. Now, real quick, for the next couple minutes here, let me, let's make some practical application. Because although we talked about you know, what this mercy seat represented, let's talk about uh, the, the name, the mercy seat. Amen? The mercy seat. What was the point of this? It was so God, even though dealing with mankind in our fallen state, could show mercy to His people. Amen? Amen. Show mercy to His people. And of course, that was the point of the blood was to be sprinkled so that uh, sin could be temporarily covered and atoned for so God could be merciful to His people. By the way, what is merciful? God not giving us what we deserve. By the way, we deserve the justice and judgment of God is what we deserve. Thank God He deals with us in mercy. In mercy. Let's look here at just a couple passages and we'll close this thing down. Go to Psalms. You're close. Flip back again. We've been in and out of Psalms. Chapter 51. Psalms chapter 51. This is the psalm uh, that David prayed to God uh, after he was confronted by Nathan the prophet for his sin of, uh, of adultery and murder. And, uh, and we see here that the first thing David prays in this psalm, in the very first words out of his mouth, Psalm 51, 1, have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according to the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. By the way, you know what allows God to do those things? You know what allows God to uh, blot out our transgressions, wash us uh, from our iniquities, from our sin? You know what allows Him to do that? That is mercy. His mercy. Amen. His his unmerited favor to us. Amen. Not giving us what we deserve. Now, because of Jesus Christ, He can have mercy on us. And because of that, all right. One more passage. We'll we'll be done. One more passage. Hebrews chapter 4. You knew I was going here, and uh, we've been going here quite a bit through this study because uh, this verse really, truth be told, pictures uh, almost every single thing in the tabernacle. It all goes back to this right here because Jesus Christ is our high priest. Verse 14, Hebrews chapter 4. Again, very familiar passage of Scripture. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. By the way, let me just remind you folks, amen? You don't need to go through me to get to God, amen? You have a high priest, and it's Jesus Christ. And listen, you have just as much access to Him. I don't mind to guide you. Listen, I'm His under-shepherd here at His church. But listen, you go to Him, amen? Yeah, And you pray to Him, and you have a relationship with Him, all right? And you don't have to do that through me. You can do that on your own. Because he's our great high priest that's passed into the heavens. Verse 15. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Again, we talk about this verse all the time. We have a scripture song. We sing about this verse. But again, let's be reminded of it. Amen? The reason you can uh, hold fast your profession in verse 14, the reason you could go to him, because you know what? He was touched with the feelings of our infirmities. He knows exactly what it is what we're going through. There's nothing you've ever been through or ever will go through that Jesus Christ can't relate to you about. He relates to your temptation because when he was in the wilderness, he was tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. Amen? Anything you have faced, will face, ever will face, 
Jesus Christ faced it down in the wilderness and Saint tempted him for 40 days and 40 nights. When it comes to your, your heartaches and your sorrows and your pain, he took it all when he gave his body to be broken on the way to Calvary and as he hung on the cross of Calvary. He knows anything and everything about us, and he and he can be touched with the feelings of our infirmities because he's a great high priest. Now, because of all that, verse 16, all right? Let us, therefore, therefore, anytime you see a therefore, you need to know why it's therefore, okay? Because of verse 14 and 15, that's why it's therefore. Because he's there, you can come boldly unto the throne of grace. Amen? Amen? Boldly come. What happens at that throne of grace? That we may obtain mercy. Obtain mercy. And find grace to help in the time of need. Listen, folks, think about it. We have direct access to the throne of God. Direct access. I mean, listen, folks. You you can get to the throne of God quicker than you can voice dial somebody's number stored in your phone. Direct access. By the way, no middleman. That's why you don't need me to get to God. That's why this, this, this wicked um, that Catholic thing about going through a priest and confessing your sins to a priest because somehow that priest can get to God quicker than you can. That's hogwash, amen? That's not Bible, amen? No, this is Bible right here. Let us, every Christian who's been washed in the blood of Jesus Christ, listen, you can boldly go to that throne. I don't believe you ought to go arrogantly, but you ought to go boldly, amen? And you know what you're going to find at that, at that throne? You're going to find grace and you're going to find mercy. And let me tell you, find grace to help in the time of need. God ought to be the first place you go when you have a need. Amen? Because there's mercy there. There's grace there. All because of the blood that was shed. And all because of Jesus Christ. The work that was done through the priest in the tabernacle on the mercy seat. He accomplished it all when he died and rose and went to heaven and put his blood on the mercy seat in heaven. Amen? Amen. Right. Man, praise God. I don't know about you. That's exciting stuff. Yes, sir. Yep. And I pray that we'll take these things, apply them, let it help us in our